Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it! You better stop it! This episode of the Ready State Podcast is sponsored by Paleo Valley Essential C Complex. You know what's amazing about how we got to this place? We're talking about expansion across the seas. You know what was the limiting factor? What? Scurvy. No, no. Honestly, it was so difficult to get vitamin C. People like fell apart, their tissues melted, and that's why I'm sort of obsessed with vitamin C. You know, the other night we were just talking about how, uh, how long we could survive in a zombie apocalypse by just eating protein powder, coconut oil, and pool water. And I think we were also worried about getting scurvy in that time, yeah, too. Yeah, because it really, you're like, I hit my macros, but it turns out the essential keystone that allows you to generate all and create all of the soft tissue and connective tissue that we're obsessed with, vitamin C. In all seriousness, everyone in the Starat family takes Essential C Complex every day. One of the reasons is that most vitamin C supplements are nothing more than ascorbic acid, which is only one fraction of a full vitamin C, and it is derived from GMO corn and highly processed in the lab. Ew. But- you, you know what? Uh, think if you were a pirate and you had <laughs> Essential C. You are you could, back to this pirate thing? You could rule the Hold on, seas. let me try to be serious here. Paleo Valley Essential C Complex contains the most concentrated sources of natural organic vitamin C on the planet with unripe Acerola cherry leading the pack followed by Camu Camu and Amala Berry. Did I pronounce that correctly? Yeah, well enough. But more importantly, can we get back to pirates for a second? <laughs> because what, what I want you to appreciate is that Every in the morning, you're actually vitamin C depleted. You have to put money in that tank every day. You should go get some. We love it. If you want to, go to thereadystate.com slash essential C, that's the letter C, and use the code readystate for 15% off. This episode of the Ready State podcast is brought to you by Keon Aminos. Look, I don't know when I became Keon Aminos aware, but they've been part of my daily plan for a long time now. Which is true. I can vouch for that because he does take them every single day. I am really bad at nutrient timing. I just don't do a good job of it. Like I exercise and then uh, there's no food. I'm in the desert. And, and what I really like about this is this guarantees that I am in a fed amino positive state. Remember, aminos are the building blocks for not just your muscles, all of your tissues. And what's awesome about Keon Aminos is they're 100% plant-based. There are no artificial ingredients. I have you can you can take them pre or post workout. Totally easy on my stomach. I have a ton of friends who are vegan and vegetarian, and one of the ways that I can ensure that they're getting all the amino acids, not just eating beans and rice, right, is that we layer that in on top. So for me, it's insurance, and I can go off on a ride without having to eat a big meal or choke down a bunch of eggs. I'm I'm fed. Well, also, you can take them in a tablet form or in a powdered form, so you can do whatever works for you. Yeah, you know, and sometimes what I feel like is that when people are messing around with little niggly insertion problems, little tendinopathies and in, in things, what I can guarantee is that they've got the full profile of aminos on board. So I'm, I'm like, okay, if, you're, if your protein isn't great, I know you're set. If you want to try them, which we totally recommend, go to thereadystate.com slash aminos and get 20% off your first purchase. Soman Chainani's debut series, The School for Good and Evil, has sold more than 3 million copies, been translated into 30 languages across six continents, and will be a major motion picture from Netflix in 2022. Each of the six books in the series have debuted on the New York Times bestseller list. Together, the books have been on the print and extended list for 38 weeks. Soman has recently announced a new book, Beasts and Beauty, coming September 28, 2021, from HarperCollins. 
a graduate of Harvard University and Columbia University's MFA film program, Soman began his career as a screenwriter and director, with his films playing at over 150 film festivals around the world. He has been nominated for the Waterstone Prize for Children's Literature, been named to the Out 100, and also received the $100,000 Shasha Grant and the Sun Valley Writers Fellowship, both for debut writers. Kelly and I first met Soman through our mutual friend Tim, and we've been fast friends ever since. Soman joins us today from his home in New York City. Soman, welcome to the Ready State Podcast. We're so excited to have you. I am too excited for this. I've been waiting for it for many a day. Okay, so in Wait, wait, I'm going to start by just saying, so everyone understands, Juliet and Soman were separated in the womb. I'm not sure how mechanically it works out or what the biology is, but you two are the same person split in half, just so everyone knows. Yeah, just in full disclosure. Yeah, what are we? We're both type A, but we're over emotional, and yet we try not to show our emotions. It's very, very contradictory and difficult, but we both get each other. Yes. So what's so great about when I get to hang out with Soman is that I'm like, oh, I understand Soman. I've lived with Soman for over 20 years. <laughs> okay, so Soman, So great to talk to you, my yeah, friend. Yeah, we're so happy to actually see your face. Can you tell us the story of how we first met? This is a good one. It's because I was on Tim Ferriss' podcast, and I had been a huge fan of Tim for a very long time, and it was one of like my dreams in life. You know how you have lifelong dreams to kind of meet your heroes. And I'm like, maybe when I'm 60, I'll get to meet Tim Ferriss and be a guest on his podcast. And then it happened within a month. It was almost like I manifested it into being. And yeah, just bonded with Tim over, you know, writing and also this series that I've been working on for 10 years now, The School for Good and Evil. And then I got a message from Tim, maybe a couple months later, that he was at your guys' house. And uh, he had spotted my books on... Uh, your daughter Georgia's shelf, and he wanted me to record a message for you guys, or for her. So I recorded a message, and then you guys uh, just sent me this very casual email that was like, if you're ever in San Francisco, come say hi. And I was just happening to come out a couple months later, and then that was it. I came over, and uh, if I remember correctly, I came over with like a giant wound in my leg. That was our introduction. I came over with a- You did. You'd had a box jump injury, a huge box jump injury. And I think, did we, we had you go in the sauna, but not the ice bath. I don't even think we made it to the sauna. I remember coming in and, and realizing that you guys were physical animals. And my first question to both of you was, it's not that bad, right? Because, you know, I just assumed Dr. Sturette and you would be like, oh, we see this every day. And both of your eyes bugged out and was like, oh, this is bad not good. And I was like, uh-oh. And that was sort of how we began. You know, <laughs> I have to nice say, to meet you, Soman. Your leg smells of almonds. Um, <laughs> what do you, I mean, here's what I thought was so cool about that first visit is that we invited you to come over for dinner and you didn't know us from Adam other than us having connected friends. And you just- And a little bit of, a little bit of CrossFit. A little bit of CrossFit connection too. But I mean, you actually just showed up and, you know, it was so cool that you just, you know, got in an Uber and came over to our house and- you know, we were immediately best friends. But and then I bandaged your leg. Well, yes, you you bandaged my leg and told me that everything I was doing up to that point for my leg was incorrect. <laughs> up to that point, was, <laughs> that sounds familiar. Okay, so keeping this moving on, I really want you to tell us a little bit about your childhood growing up in Florida. So the problem with growing up in Florida was I wasn't really suited for it because, you know, I grew up on an island where I was like the only Indian person, you know what I mean? Like, so that was one thing. I was super, super skinny. 
you know, I was in the closet being gay. Like there, there were so many things that were kind of like standing out, you know, that that didn't fit with me in the sort of party culture of Miami. Because when you go to Miami, like everything's about the party, everything's about the fun. And that was just never my nature, you know. Um, and I grew up the middle child of three boys. So I already was like born to be a shrinking violet as a middle child. And I just felt like as the years went on, I started to disappear into myself, you know, and it was writing that actually became my sort of lifeline and my escape. Um, the funny story I tell about Miami is that the sort of intellectual power of my high school was so underwhelming. And I didn't really study that much back then. Like I wasn't such a hard worker in high school, but I was valedictorian by like two full points. Like, basically like two full grade levels. Do you know what I mean? Like it was just. <laughs> you had A's and everyone else had B's. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. There was no, there was just never any competition or anything like that because the kids were too busy being at the beach and at, you know, Jamba Juice or, or whatever. You know, it just, it wasn't a place to foster any kind of intellectual engagement. How was it that your parents ended up there? Why there? So weirdly enough, my grandfather was like, the first Indian to ever come to Florida. He and, and my mom and her sisters have names named after them in Daytona and Ocala and, and things like that because back then no one had ever seen an Indian in Florida. But my grandfather saw an opportunity with real estate when he came from India and he had done all this research and realized that like there was just a prime opportunity to build a real estate business there. And so he moved to Daytona Beach and you know, when you move and you're the, the sole member of a new culture, one of two things can happen. Either you can be discriminated against as, you know, sort of this weird alien who's arrived in a new town. Or in the case of my grandfather, he had a wife and my grandmother, who is the most gorgeous woman in the entire world and looked like Sophia Loren and dressed like a million bucks. And so they became celebrities. They became kind of like, you know, almost like a prince and princess who arrived from an exotic land. And, um, you know, he built his business solely based off of, you know, his wife's image and how popular she was with everybody in the community. And so they just stayed in Florida. They ended up moving to Key Biscayne, building a big real estate business there. And then um, they lived there. I mean, they lived there until they died. And we lived there for my entire life. You've just set up basically the entire story of School for Good Neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> Which we'll get, we'll get to, but suddenly, you know, if you have read this incredible series at all or understand sort of the the central view of the, your protagonists as outsiders, as not fitting in the right school, I mean, you that's got to be just lurking deep in your psyche a little bit sometimes. Well, I think the other thing to remember is that my grandmother coming into a new environment, being different. And becoming the star of the world and everyone in love with her and the cover of every magazine was then attempted to be replicated by her daughter and my mother, who failed miserably at it and spent her entire life kind of feeling awkward and different and, you know, having self-esteem issues. And then repeated in the sun, me going into the school, attempting to shine in my like gay, happy skinny self and also failing miserably at first, you know? So I think it was deceptive because the legend of our family was if you are just beautiful and glamorous, everything will be fine. And we couldn't do it. We couldn't, you know, we could not live up to, to what my grandmother was, you know? That um, works in the fifties and sixties. It worked in the fifties and sixties. And also she was just a rare, she was a rare creature. And so, you know, I think it, it took me much longer to 
you know, come to terms with who I was and, and to realize that I was just fine the way I was. But, you know, I had to go through a lot of ups and downs. You have had, um, I think the right word is a little success as, as an author. You've just gotten back from where there, we'll talk more about what a project that's bananas big and we're filming. How do your parents as second generation immigrants and potentially what I understand it from my Indian friends, pressure around sort of fitting in a certain way or having a certain occupation. How do your parents perceive what you're doing and your success and what you're doing? I think Indian parents are happy as long as they have things they can tell their friends about. (laughs) I think that's every parent. Yes. I feel like they could, they didn't really settle into it until the movie was announced, the stars were announced and they could share like uh, the number one question I get, if you look through all my texts with them, the question that appears over and over and over is like, oh, but when can we tell the Indians? Like, that's sort of the like motto of the family. Like, when can we tell the Indians about X? Yes, exactly. What's real is when you can tell the, the community that whose opinion they don't even care about. So it's all very kind of built in. And it's that sort of, you know, immigrant mentality that you'll never get away from. But I think part of my life in particular has been getting away from that line of thinking. And so what's interesting is I, I feel like I've lived for my parents' approval for such a long time. And then at some point realized that I rejected, I was now going to reject that as the measure of success, you know? Wait a minute. So you're Tedros? I am basically Tedros. Tedros is, but in Tedros's case, who was the son of King Arthur in the school for good and evil. He is going to inherit the kingdom. And I think he has to make his own rules and make his own you know, way in the world. And I think in my case, you know, he was had to do it by force because both his parents were dead. In my case, I had to sort of come to terms and be like, you know what, if I live for my parents' approval, if I follow that kind of immigrant line of thinking, I'm never going to be happy because how do you, there's no end to it. You know, you're always trying to scale another mountain. You're always trying to be number one at something else. And it was just making me miserable, you know? Like um, the moment I knew when I had to change was, so I was not the at my high school. And then I went to Harvard and I graduated number one in my major and I was number two in the whole class out of 1600 kids and I had never been more miserable I think that was when I was like on you know suicidal and sort of in a bad place and so like if you're literally at the top of your Harvard class and you can't function like something has to change you're doing life wrong you know what I mean (laughs) no I don't (laughs) I don't I've never been to the top of Harvard class I, I went to Boulder One of my favorite, favorite stories, just since we're talking about your parents that you told me is I'm pretty sure you'd had like five New York Times bestsellers and you'd sold the rights to the book for a movie. And then your dad texts you and says, "Okay, I think it's fine now if you take Uber whenever you want, which to me, that was just so striking. Just, you know, as we're talking about kind of like the immigrant mentality and the, you know, just that he was like, okay, for whatever reason, that was the threshold at which it was okay for you to take Uber. That was it. And then it was, what was funny was I kept telling him, because what's weird is, um, because I'm in the family business in some ways. And so like, they see all the accounting and everything. And he's like, you take too many Ubers. And so the fight was always over. Like, I'm in charge of my own life. I'm an adult now. You shouldn't even be looking at my, my... (laughs) Ubers, how many Ubers I'm taking? Why are you looking at all this stuff? I'm like, I could finally one day he's like, you can take Ubers whenever you want. And then I was like, great, thank you for giving me that permission. And then he ended it with happiness is positive cash flow. <laughs> <laughs> I will, I, 
will tell you that um, I do bribe our newly driving daughter, Georgia, with tanks of gas. Mm. So positive it, it, cash flow. Um, positive cash flow. Okay, so Soman, I just I do want to go back to what you were saying about finishing Harvard, being at the top of your class, but also being at a low, low mentally. How did you sort of dig yourself out of that hole and what did you do? Mm. I think part of what was the issue is that I was sort of a floating head. Like I lived in my head and I think I had no no basis in my body. Do you know what I mean? Like, well, you played tennis in high school, didn't you? Yes, but the way I played tennis was so funny because looking back now, I realize why like, I never got as good as I should have been like at the level I am now. is because I sort of played at the rhythm of my head. I played tennis in a very kind of like heady way and I never got better physically. I was just relying entirely on like my sort of natural brain power at outfoxing and outmaneuvering an opponent. But I didn't make it a physical game. And I, like when I lost, it was always because I got sort of like overpowered by somebody, you know? And I think as I sort of came into my own, I realized that, fine, I had taken care of my intellect, but I had no grounding in my body, you know? So that's when I got into yoga. That's when I got into, you know, meditation. I just tried to like reconnect with this thing that I had, I had never really, you know, given myself credit for. I was so eager to escape my body as a youth because I honestly thought being skinny, gay, all these things, you know, were a liability. And so, so much of my adult life became about reconnecting to it, sort of grounding back in the earth. Do you think that's a common uh, phenomenon in so many, you know, people who have a creative bent? We tell people you can either be a brain or a body. I mean, you know what I mean? That it's not okay to have both or dabble in both because you really speak to, I mean, I just have grown up with so many talented people who had these amazing skills, but sometimes you don't get something for nothing. You know, you have to work on the other thing. I think it's also that, you know, in order to be, this is my personal opinion, some people might disagree, but in order to have that kind of like creative engine, that thing that's spurring you to create all the time, you have to be trying to escape your body. That's what you're trying to do is trying to, you're trying to create a fantasy world to live in, but your body, your body does not want to be in the present. It does not want to be here. So therefore your creativity is going to take you somewhere else. And I think that's sort of where it all begins. And so I think it'll be hard pressed to find an artist who doesn't start from a place of imbalance, a place of the brain and body being off kilter. And then I think the cool thing about it is once you realize that, you try to find a new alignment. And when you do, not only do you have your creative powers now even stronger, but you also then get get sort of the physical realm to play with. You know what I mean? So to me, it's like, what's funny is I always say, ask myself, like, would I have chosen this life if I was given an opportunity before I like came through the birth canal? And now that like I see the way everything worked out, I'm like, yes, absolutely. I think it just, you had, I had to go so far in extreme in one direction in order to find to come and find balance later, you know? I just want people to know that Soman is one of the hardest working athletes I know. Like you're so consistent. Wherever you are, you find a fantastic coach. You really are like you have a practice that I just don't think people I really people don't know how just dedicated you are to practice. And it's not like you're obsessed, but you're just like, this is what the grounding that you talk about is really a huge component to your success, I think, and productivity. It's really like, you're so prolific. Well, I think it's that also, I realize that it's never for vanity. I think like, you know, just all the, the working out and all that stuff. It's because I can't 
right unless I am in this world. And I tried yoga for eight or nine years, and I realized the problem with yoga is it reminded me too much of writing. They're kind of the same thing. You know, like they operate at this pace where you can sort of creatively experience it, but you're not actually there. I don't know. It, it's a little bit too much in the spirit and the head in the way that writing is, you know? And so once I got into CrossFit and I got into actual strength training, where like, you know, there's 150 pounds on your back and you might die if you're not paying attention. That's <laughs> when I feel like finally, finally, like I woke up. Like something about that woke me up. Like, and I think I'll never go back to, you know, the other stuff because it was, it is these little mini life and death moments every time you're under the bar, I think, that brought me back to the world. So one of the other 50, the 50,000 things that you and I have in common is some career right turns and left turns. And I know after Harvard, you had a brief stint as a screenwriter and then went on to some other things before you started writing School for Good and Evil. But just tell us about that little period and then how you transition from doing those things to deciding you're going to write a book. Wait, do you guys know my, my first actual job after I graduated school? Not maybe. I don't know. Okay. So my first actual job was um, I was a pharmaceutical consultant, even though I don't take Advil or I, I don't take anything. Somehow I ended up being a pharmaceutical consultant. I got fired after a year and a half. Then I was broke. Because I, I didn't want, I didn't know I could be a writer. Like I was still on my immigrant path of go to business school, do what your parents say, become a banker, all that stuff. But I got fired, um, and I didn't know. That's when I had to sort of like take new stock. And the first job I got after being fired was um, this company that associated with Cliff Notes. I think it was called Grade Saver. It came to me and asked if I would write their official Cliff Notes on the Kama Sutra. I have not heard the story. I can't story. believe you've never told us this. I did know about the pharmaceutical rep, but not this. So pharmaceutical rep got fired, totally lost. My parents are yelling at me, get a job, get a job. No one will give me a job. And then Cliff Notes calls and they're like, oh, we saw you went to Harvard and you are Indian. Can you do the Cliff Notes on the Kama Sutra for $500? And I said, absolutely. So I spent like whatever, a month or two months and it's still available on Amazon. It has one review for being very sterile and like not appreciative. <laughs> <laughs> um, just the cliff notes. Hey, one could you give me the cliff notes on the Bible? That'd be great. I'm 100%. I'm buying that immediately after this. <laughs> and it's funny because whatever, whatever I do, like a dating profile on any app, that's honestly my line. Because I just feel like... Wrote the cliff notes on Kama Sutra. This I just feel like it sets up such terrible expectations, but I love it. Um, so that was like, that was the first, uh, that was the first detour. And then I went to film school and came out, you know, sort of a, again, I was good at school. So I came out kind of like a hotshot screenwriter and got signed by a big agency and was back on the path to, you know, immigrant success where they can tell your, their friends about it. And then I was supposed to direct a movie. I moved to London and we were prepping it. It had a pretty big cast. It was about an Indian wedding. It was really about my family in a lot of ways. And after a year and a half, we lost financing for it and the movie fell apart. And so at that point, I had no income. I was back to looking for work, you know, with little writing gigs and things like that. And I was sort of lost. And that's when I came up with the idea for the School for Good Evil. And while I was sort of piddling around with that, uh, I was working as a tutor. And I tutored for, for 10 years, you know, until I had to give it up at the, once the books sort of 
became successful enough that my even my dad admitted I could let go of tutoring income. Which, by the way, I think was you were continued to tutor well after you had many New York Times bestsellers. It was so late. It was like we had already sold the movie. We had it was just like, and when I gave it up, I I remember him being like, "You are because it had turned into a big business." The crazy part was right when I didn't need the money anymore, the thing, it, it blew up into this big business. And the idea that he, that I was letting it go, like he couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe that he would give up like this business you built. And I tried to explain to him, I'm like, I don't, like I do it because I have to. I, it wasn't my love. You know, it's not what I, I thought. There's so much here because you spend 10 years living with teenagers who are, there's a lot of expectations of these teenagers. You have your own, this is called a teenage baggage self that we all have, right? And then you're living with these teenagers, helping them through these transitions from childhood to adulthood or this peri-adulthood thing where they're going to college. Do you feel like it's so, you know, the thing that blows me the way the most about what I understand about your process is that all of these books are in your head. You don't have like a crazy board that connects plots and, and you don't, it's just all in your head. It's like you've been carrying all of these kids in your head. Do you have just an infinite file system? Because if you get into the school for good and evil, it has really case studies about young adults over and over and over again. I have to say that like, there's no school for good and evil really without these children. There's about 10 years of, of angst of just like, you just submerge yourself in teenage angst. I think it's what I, I did love about tutoring so much was the ability to kind of get in a kid's head. And I sort of became popular with doing more the guy clients than the girl clients because I just was naturally sort of, you know, tough love and things like that. And I think I was able to understand that boys have to present in a very sort of unemotional, like, you know, everything is great kind of way. Nothing bothers me. I'm totally chill. Everything's fine. Like everything's chill, right? That's their sort of motto. Yes, it was for me. Given the space to actually admit their vulnerability and someone who actually is there to tell them they're not the greatest thing in the world. I think too often like <laughs> the boys are told by their teachers, oh, like, you know, like it's fine because you're a boy. That's sort of the, the kind of like undercurrent often. It's like, oh, you're a guy. You're going to be fine. You fail that test. It's fine. You're a guy. You know what I mean? Like it's just kind of like coddling. And I think what I could often do is just sort of be straight with them and honest with them. And that's kind of what, you know, really worked. I think what was also happening at the same time was, you know, I had had such a horrible middle school and high school experience in a lot of ways that at night I was sitting with these jockey guys who would have bullied me in high school. And then I was going for like three week or month long tours to middle schools where I was standing in front of 500 or 600 kids in a school assembly kind of replicating every time that I had to stand in front of an assembly and got like booed or heckled, you know, in middle school or high school. So I just felt like somehow the universe had conspired to make me relive my sort of like the horrors of my youth over and over until I finally figured out how to crack it. Do you know what I mean? And there came a moment where all of a sudden, anytime I went into a new kid's house, I could easily get them on my side in 10 minutes. And anytime I appeared in an assembly, no matter where I was in the country, I could have them laughing and completely in my hand within like a few minutes, you know, but it was, it was almost like being a stand up comedian or, or, or doing a new act like that where you have to just fail over and over again, over like a thousand times before finally it happens. It's that sort of breakthrough. And now you put me in front of teenagers that I would have been terrified of well into my twenties. And I'm just like, what do you got? 
like that. <laughs> I think that's probably part of the reason why our girls love you so much because you completely get them. But your girls are a different, different breed. I mean, these are Storette girls, so they are intimidating to everybody, including me sometimes, where I'm just like, oh my God, like how does anyone even, how does anyone their age even like handle being in the same room, room as them without getting like odd or intimidated, you know what I mean? But yeah, I just think, well, that's also like, it's also healing in a weird way to see kids raised the right way. Because just as a fantasist, what I often do is kind of like unconsciously go back to my old childhood self and sort of think, what if I had been raised in a house like this? Or what if my life had looked something like this? And that can be healing in its own weird way. So we've been talking about it and referenced it 20 times mm-hmm. already in this podcast, but what is the school for good and evil? And what is currently happening? What's And what is it about? Because we obviously have read all the books, but everybody else has not. It's the closest I could come to taking my insides and sort of structuring it into an alternative universe. And it really is, a, it, it's about a school where kids are trained either to be heroes in the school for good or villains in the school for evil. And the founding principle is that you are either born skewing one way or the other. You're either the kid who likes to build sandcastles on the beach, or you're the kid who likes to wait till that kid finishes so you can belly flop and smash it all. You know what I mean? Like you're either a creator or you're someone who likes to destroy things, not necessarily just to like for the act and pureness of destruction, but to see how things are put together, you know? And I think every soul skews that one way or the other. You're either secretly kind of rooting for the villain or, you know, you're rooting for the hero. And I think growing up, I was always the kid who found the villains more compelling. And, you know, you watch Disney and you watch Star Wars and it's always a good guy who wins over and over and over again. And it's the good guy whose point of view is privileged. Like in Harry Potter, you only follow the Gryffindors. And the Slytherins become this the butt of the joke who, you know, are, are just sort of dumped on every 50 pages or so. And so when it came time to sort of find, you know, I'd lost the movie. I, I, all the stuff I was working on wasn't happening. And I think deep inside, I was like, let's tell the truth. Let's tell the real story now. And the real story was, you know, I don't know where I fit in between the two poles in the world, between, you know, the good guys, the guys that clearly don't want me in their club, and then the evil people who everyone says are like ruining our world, you know, like the, the villains, right? Our world had been so into right and wrong and good and bad. And so over the six books, we sort of go into the areas of gray, you know, and we use uh, two main characters, these two girls named Sophie and Agatha. Sophie is kind of your almost prototypical Disney princess. And Agatha is kind of a, a Disney witch who lives in a graveyard and is obsessed with death. Antihero. Yeah, antihero. And I think, you know, that's how they start in the first 10 pages. And then slowly the world kind of warps and you realize that in your, you're as far as from Disney as you can be. So I wrote six books in the series and each book sort of tackles a different binary. Like the first book is obviously about good and evil. The second book looks at boys and girls. The third book looks at young and old. Each book kind of takes apart something that we take for granted and really sort of blows everything up. And, you know, the age range for them, I always, there's no answer because I think like fairy tales, they work for everybody, you know, like a nine or 10 year old can read it and get the story. And then we have plenty of adults who read it and see everything else I'm doing, you know. But it's one of the appeals of why Netflix bought it. So Netflix is making the first book into a movie. And they saw it as an opportunity to create sort of a new Harry Potter-esque franchise, but something that was a little edgier, a little sexier, a little more dangerous, 
And uh, it's being directed by Paul Feig, who made Bridesmaids and Spy and Freaks and Geeks and Ghostbusters. And uh, it stars Charlize Theron as the Dean of Evil, Carrie Washington as the Dean of Good, Lawrence Fishburne as the Schoolmaster, and some amazing kids as Sophie Agatha and everybody else at the school. And so I just got back from Belfast. I was there for about a month watching the filming. And uh, I thought I was going to get struck by lightning or something because I was like, I don't understand where life goes from here. Like, what happens next? Like, what are you supposed to, how are you supposed to come back to earth? Depression, alcohol, cocaine. That's how you (laughs) you fill that hole. But you know what's funny is, I think the problem is most times authors stay for two or three days, they get the high, and then they come back and then have that moment, right? That rock star moment. I stayed for a much longer. And so I had the high and then slowly started to settle into the more weird, uncomfortable parts of it. And so by the time it was finished, I was ready to come home. You know, and uncomfortable only meaning that, you know, at some point you start to realize like, oh, this is your world that you've worked on for 10 years. And this is your unconscious and your feelings and all your repressed emotions from childhood. All, you know, that was put on a page now brought to life by 600 strangers. You know what I mean? And you start to feel a little naked and exposed on set in a, in a sort of primal way. My friend, um, Jenny, who I uh, did to all the boys I loved before, which is one of Netflix's biggest uh, franchises, you know, she warned me, she's like, at some point, the unsettling aspect of it will come and you can't freak out. You can't feel ashamed of it or guilty of it. It's just that moment's going to come and it came. And when it came, I was ready for it. And then I was ready to go. Uh, I'm just going to go on record as saying that if I have to have my psyche represented and manifested, Charlie's Theron would be a good first choice. (laughs) She is, she, you know, for my first moment on set, I literally come in, I'm still hopped on adrenaline, like high on adrenaline. And the first thing I see is her, like and I, in her costume, she's wearing, she has this amazing, you'll see it on the internet because we just released all these stills, this kind of cool red wig. She looks like the supermodel Karen Russell from the 80s. And that's when I was like, okay, I've lost, I am no longer on earth. I don't know where I am anymore. You know what I mean? Because she was based on my, that character was based on my seventh grade English teacher. So it just was strange. You know what I mean? When a lot of people read a book and maybe listen to an audiobook, even how names are pronounced, there's a change because you kind of create a personalized version. When you see a movie after have reading a beloved book, it can really warp and you, there's some real dissonance there. I can't imagine the dissonance of having, being the author and then seeing someone else's interpretation of that. Do you feel like, I know you've had that experience before going from page to movie, but when it happened to you, how long did it take to say, this is okay, that this, you know, the costume wasn't what I imagined or the environment wasn't what I imagined? Because it is gorgeous and it's really amazing and the characters are incredible, comma, it's still not your brain. I think what helped is because I had gone to film school and spent so much time on the film side of things before I started writing books. That never bothered me, also because Paul is so in sync with the book. The book is actually quite tricky, and though, you know anybody who's listening to this and ends up reading it, you'll see tonally it's so different from Potter and Disney about all that stuff. It just it's very edgy and it's very sharp, and it's a very difficult thing to adapt because if you try to do it in an earnest way, you're going to lose the fun of it. And Paul is that sort of perfect director who can do all the different tones. You know, every movie he has has like ten different tones. And so at some level, what's funny is there were so many times where I was watching scenes thinking this is exactly how I would have done it, only with better clothes. Do you know what I mean? Because he's such a 
he's such a fashion-oriented director. So you, you would just see some amazing, the costumes are amazing and things like that. So I felt like just creatively, I was in a very enviable position of not second-guessing anything because everything really did look amazing. I think it was more that when it just is so large, there's so many departments and there's so many things that every little decision is being made. So like someone would walk by and they're like, okay, how many ribs are we putting in the stem? And first I would have to be like, stimp, that's my word. I remember when I came up with that, I came up with that when I was wearing pajamas in this hotel on this day. Second of all, I want to jump in and be like, actually, it's 12 ribs because if you look at this, you know what I mean? Like I want to jump in. And what I had to do was kind of just be like, you are just an observer and you're done. Your work is done in a lot of ways. You wrote the books, you helped with the screenplay, you've been involved with all these years of development and you're on to new things. And that's why it was time to come home at some point because it was the time to move on to the next the next thing. I could have stayed there for forever, but uh, I think it was almost a tacit admission to myself of, you know, on to the next. On to the next. So I still have 25 more questions about the movie. Oh, yeah. I want to go back in time because at some point you were not a six-time New York Times bestseller. You were like a guy running a tutoring business, writing sort of a YA fantasy book about heroes and villains. And how did you sell that first book? I mean, did you get an agent were you confident it was going to be huge? Were they confident? Were, you know, just tell us about that process because I know it's not nothing to sort of, lots of people are at home typing away writing a book, but transitioning from actually selling the book and then having it become a sure. New York Times bestseller, that's a, you know, there's a huge valley between those two things. It was so strange that I just lost the movie and I ended up falling into a cult a little bit. It was this yoga teacher, his name was Marco. He taught in New York City. He taught this very like hot yoga class and he would make us wear blindfolds some days and do it blindfolded. He was like, he was very much like a cult leader. And because I was so lost, when you are lost, any cult leader is like greatly attractive. Do you know what I mean? So I was taking his yoga class four or five times a week and I felt like that had become my full-time job is like prepping and recovering from his crazy yoga classes. And I had had this wolf of an evil idea and there was something about taking those classes and sort of being in that fog of following him and all his sort of like, you know, be who you are, like destroy who you think you are, become who you're really like that whole, like deconstruct your life. That was his thing, like decondition yourself from your own life. And I found myself sort of putting together this very detailed proposal for three books, you know, almost unconscious way. Cause I had no desire to write novels. I didn't want to be a novelist. You know what I mean? But it was almost like by taking the yoga classes every day, and then coming home exhausted, I was just sort of like following whatever the energy was telling me to do. And when it was done, I remember I looked at it and I was like, what is, like, I literally have a 90 page proposal for three books that I will never write. Like, cause to get a publishing deal, you have to write a book. And all I had was like an outline, you know, of what the book would be. I had done everything but write the book. I wasn't, you know, I had flirted around the, the edges of it. And so I gave it to a producer I was working, had worked with on something else. And she's like, these are books. And I'm like, she's like, you should write one. I'm like, I'm never going to write one. I'm not going to sit there and spend a year on a book. It's just not, it wasn't in my consciousness at that point. So she goes, let me send it to some publishers and just see what they think. Maybe someone will be interested in, in maybe just buying it, you know, even if there's no book. So she sent it to 17 publishers, 16 replied with, there's no, it's a great idea, but there's no book. So we can't do anything. And HarperCollins was like, oh, we'll buy all three. So they bought all three books, even though not a word was written. And that's how the whole thing happened. 
And, and then step and then one, yoga. You, step three, New York Times bestseller. Um, did you have a moment of thinking, oh no, now I actually have to write these books? Like now I'm committed? Oh my God. The first thing I did was I remember calling, I think it was my brother or something. And I'm like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to sit in a room alone. I, I'm like, I'm isolated enough as it is because I was still struggling with all my other stuff, you know, just psychological stuff. And so I was just not ready. You know what I mean? And he was like, his response was kind of classic. He's like, you're broke and have no job and they're offering you money. So I was like, okay. Happiness is financial liquidity. I mean, how did you figure out? How, because I know you were tutoring at this time. Did you just decide, okay, I'm going to block off three hours of every day where I take, don't take any clients? And how did you do the process part? It was tough. I tutored from 4 to 10 p.m., seven days a week. And I wrote from 9 to 30. So you're talking getting super out of balance between head and body. You know what I mean? By the time I finished book three, that's when I gave up tutoring. By the time I finished book three and I'd given up tutoring, I was down to 118 pounds. I was 118 pounds. My hair was falling out. Like I had so many physical problems. Like I totally lost touch. Like I produced like three books that I was very proud of, but I was basically like almost on the verge of death. Do you know what I mean? You know, I wonder if that's sort of part of doing anything great though. And I don't mean to compare us to you at all. But at our early parts of our business, we really had this strong instinct that we had to say yes to absolutely everything, never say no, that if that meant that we were working seven days a week and traveling half the year and whatever we were doing, like we had to, you know, we had to say yes and kind of go out of balance in order to build. My hair fell out and stayed out. Kelly, Kelly's hair fell out and stayed out. But, you know, we did have to go out of balance to be able to build something and you had to go out of balance to be able to create something. Do you think that that's just the way it is? But I think it's that also there's this sense of mission, right? Like there's this thing that's pulling you through. Because I knew I was out of, I knew that it was unsustainable. And yet you just keep going. Do you know what I mean? Like what was, when you guys were still doing the gym and you were still doing everything at the same time, what was pulling you through? Like what was the motivation? We talked about it as being unsustainable. Yeah. We knew, I mean, because there was a point where we had the gym, we had Mobility Wad, we were writing and marketing Supple Leopard, and our kids were much younger, so, you know, required much more, like, one-on-one -on -one attention, and it was not sustainable. And, and we were aware of it. We were aware we kind of needed to take a moment and sort of rebalance because it was it wasn't, it was not sustainable. Yeah, even just, um, you know, just personally, we, we were, for the, you know, Juliet and I are basically had single working mothers. And money wasn't always, you know, readily available. And when we suddenly had an opportunity to make some money with like teaching, we literally would just open up the calendar and be like, all right, this is the first time. And that security came at, I mean, we were thin. What, what does Frodo say or Bilbo? It's like not enough bread or not enough butter spread over too much bread. I mean, I, that is, the question is, I think really insightful in you, J-Star saying, is that a requisite, but B, for the next three books, did you do a better job with this work-life balance? Because I, we, Juliet and I know how hard you can work. Yeah, I think it's that sometimes what has to happen is you need a sign from God to happen. You need the universe to... I knew it was unsustainable in the way you did, but I didn't know the answer. You know, I knew that I had to get back in my body somehow. So I started to go back to yoga and all that stuff. And I remember being on tour with the, the third book and reaching the end of my rope. And my assistant had booked trainer, uh, yoga teachers for every day. And on the last day of the tour, 
she screwed up or something and she couldn't get a yoga teacher. So she got me a CrossFit trainer. And I had never done anything like that before. Never. I don't think I'd ever lifted a weight in my life. You know, tennis, luckily enough, you don't often have to lift weights. So now you do, but back then you didn't. So I had never in my life. And so I ended up at this CrossFit session that was so scary and so hard. And like, I was not prepared for. And when it was done, I remember having this feeling of like, oh, I feel so much. I just feel better after, more grounded after this than I did after, you know, any of the yoga over the past eight or nine years or whatever. So it was that little thing that then I got back to New York, hired a trainer and started working out four or five days a week. At first I couldn't back squat the empty bar. You know, I was, I was really far behind. And uh, yeah, so it was that little luck. Had she not accidentally booked me with that guy, I don't, I don't know what would have happened. Do you know what I mean? In the same way that had I not lost the movie, School for Gunny will never would have happened. So I tend to follow signs. You know, one of the things I think is so cool about how you operate, and I think really is why we met each other, starting with you sending that video to Georgia, is you are so engaged with your fans and readers and are such an advocate of like reading, which is so hard these days. I mean, as a parent with technology to try to get my kid to read a book is no small task because, you know, TikTok is often much more exciting than a book. But I think part of the reason your books have been so successful and is partly because you're so directly engaged with the kids and the kids reading your books. And I think, I mean, did you have an instinct that that was the right thing to do? Was that a tactic or was that just like, this is, makes sense to you as something to do related yeah, I don't to the think books. kids kids know who JK Rowling is but they don't no they, they don't, don't interact they don't her. like interact with her I think it's because it's so funny because I think a lot of kids books have morals and I'm so uninterested in morals in general I'm interested in in feelings and the way kids feel and so I'm constantly when I'm writing all I'm doing is trying to like turn up their emotions you know what I mean and make them feel something and so so much of my you know, once I'm done with the book, I want, I'm so curious as to how things made them feel, you know, like, so I'm, I'm always trying to get in there and be like, well, how did you feel about that? You know, like, and find out like, is it working? Am I actually getting to the, to the bottom of it? You know, but I also think there's this bigger mission where I just think at some point kids are going to stop reading unless we're quite direct with them and tell them that you have a choice in life. You can stop reading and, and be on TikTok and video games and TV for the rest of your life. And that's great. But your imagination will lose its strength and power in the same way that if someone doesn't exercise, that's going to atrophy. It's just a fact of life. There's no, this is not us moralizing. This is not us trying to scare you. It's just the truth. And what will end up happening then is the kids who did read, the ones who still have an imagination, are going to be one, the ones programming all your content for the rest of your life. You guys are going to be slaves and consumers to other people's imaginations and the people who actually have an imagination are going to be the ones creating things. And that's not bad. You can be a consumer and, and the follower, but wouldn't you much rather be the one who actually has the power to create stuff? Let me just is- tell everyone that every time Caroline would get to the end of a new school for good and evil, she'd be like, I'm never reading another book until the next one comes out. Like, yeah, that's actually been hard for us. Soman is that um, if you could just produce a few more books, cause it would help Caroline. Well, she also read book when she was a little younger than she was supposed to. So she probably felt like she was in heaven getting the slipping one by you. I think. <laughs> so a lot of people have a project or a point of view and a thing. And certainly it's probably been very helpful for you to, consummate this whole book experience by seeing 
the director and these incredible artists and, and the experience come through life. But you're also crazy prolific. You have written short anthologies and, and other and addendums to your Graphic book. Graphic novels. Right. So I remember laying in bed with Juliet after Supple Leopard came out and made the, the New York Times. And I was like, well, what if this is all I have to say? And I'm done now. And, I'm, and Juliet was like, what's wrong with you? You know, but I was like, but maybe this is all I've contributed and now I'm done. And you really were like, you're in psycho. And you I mean, you just you like slapped me. I was like, like yeah, if that is all that you have. That's awesome. I was going to say, you guys produce more than I do. Well, so my question is when you wrap that, you have all these other pieces. Do you feel like there's multiple worlds in your head? Do you know where you go next? Do you let your intuition? And then where do you think that, I mean, 10 years of a body of work is insane. What happens next? I think what happens is, you know, I have a new book coming out in September. That's my first kind of step away out of that world, which is that I went back to all the original fairy tales, you know, Snow White, Cinderella, and Sleeping Beauty. And, and basically those are obsolete now because the lessons they teach don't really fit the world we live in. And I thought, what if I lived in the 1800s and I knew what was going to happen in 2021? What would I write instead? And so I almost went back to the basics and just rewrote those fairy tales and focused on good writing and just like really channeling again and being kind of fierce about the way I was writing. So to me, it's always about once I finish a big thing, it's getting back to basics. It's getting back to what I love, writing something that I love and not having a marketing design or a plan for it. And so I think that's it. I try not to think too far ahead because then you end up feeling a little bit like a corporation pumping out product. So I just try to focus on make the next thing the best thing and then give yourself the time and space to find something that inspires you again, you know. So Beasts and Beauty is the next book. That's the next one in September. Yeah, we just made a deal with a production company, so we're going to start taking it out to hopefully sell for, for TV at some point. It's just like a very kind of like edgy, subversive take on fairy tales. Here's a funny fact about it. Wait, wait, you know you've launched it on my birthday. What, September 28th? Yes, just oh. just so everyone knows. That's how, it's a big day. How, how Soman is a, is a lost part of ourselves. He splits the difference between your yin and my yang. This is going to be a big hit because of, because of this. But I think the other issue with it is that in the States, it's being published as a book for kids, uh, 10 and up, which I think is a little aggressive, if you were to ask me. And <laughs> the UK, they're publishing it as a high literary adult book. Because they read it and they were like, this is not for children. So I kind, of that, I kind of love that no one knows what to do with it. You know what I mean? So um, back to the movie, two questions. Do you think uh, when it is released, it's going to change your life? Does Do movies based on books change authors' lives? Let's talk about changing life. I feel like my life is unchangeable. My life is so like, there's cornerstones. I get up every day. I play tennis. I write. I go to my trainer, I write, and then I go on a bad date like four nights a week. That's usually <laughs> like, <laughs> that's usually my life. And I, you know, I have great friends, and then I come to you guys twice a year, right? That's sort of like that's how my life works. I feel like that's kind of how it goes. You're not like expecting to be recognized on the streets of Manhattan, no, and okay. no one recognizes authors ever, and it's the greatest thing in the world. No one, nothing ever. There's nothing that can nothing's going to change. And, and I am perfectly comfortable with how my life is right now, which is like when I go into a middle school, are the kids happy to see me? Yes. That's the only time I ever have to deal with actual like fans. 
fans. Yeah. Otherwise, basically, you're you're the writing equivalent of Enya. Like Enya made billions of dollars, and no one knows. And no who one knows she what is. Enya looks She's like. She's a genius. It's, I'm like that's the greatest singer. You know who gets ever. recognized more than me is Kelly. When he comes to New York, like we get bothered all the time. Yeah, it's true. He does. He does well, get stopped quite a bit. A two hundred and forty pound. He bald is man. very obvious. It's obvious. That does help. That's it. God forbid we ever pass an equinox. Someone always comes running out. (laughs) (laughs) So, man, before we end, I want to ask you to tell the story about us inviting you to Halloween at our house because that was a really special time. That was amazing. And I still think of it as one of the most fun nights of my life. I came, you guys, I was always coming, you know, that week to San Francisco and you were like, no, you got to come a couple days earlier and make sure you come to Halloween because Halloween at our house is epic and something special. And I had no doubt given that everything you guys do is something to remember. And so I came and uh, the costume was for Midsommar, which is a movie that Kelly told me to see. I think Kelly had seen it with Tim, no? Uh, you guys said- It's possible. Ari Aster is just brilliant genius. Yeah. I think you, you told me that to watch. I remember watching it being like, this is the greatest movie and- this sounds like the best Halloween costume. And I came and it was wild because it almost felt like we had our own Midsommar on, on your street. Like as the sun went down, everybody was behaving totally like normal and in their really costumes and they were super cute. And then the sun went down and everything was blacklit and everyone was insane. Do you know what I mean? It was the entire, it was almost like the entire village came to your house. Like that was blacklit. And you know, you had this maypole that was blacklit that, from the movie and I just remember it being completely like G-rated debauchery is what it was. The other thing I was gonna add is that um, the other funny thing about your Halloween is for all this debauchery, the whole thing is that everyone had to bring a salad. So you go into the kitchen and there's like 40 salads. I forgot about the salad part. You have to you have to offset the Yeah, yeah, you have, you have to offset the, uh, the, candy the candy somehow. You have to offset the candy and the um PBR. You have to offset the keg of PBR with salad. Okay, so Soman, thank you again so much for taking the time to talk to us. Where can people find you? When can they expect to see the movie on Netflix and so forth? They can find me on Instagram, uh, Soman Chanani, and uh, sorry, sorry, Soman C, and on Twitter, uh, Soman Chanani, and my website, somanchanani.com. And uh, we have a YouTube channel called Ever Never TV, which is kind of for kids and teenagers and fans of the world. And uh, yeah, otherwise you can find me at Kelly and Juliet's house because I am there way too often. And uh, <laughs> not often enough. I know. We're, we're going we're gonna to get back on schedule now that life is normal again. So um, thank you so much for having me. You guys are, are literally my family now. So uh, I just, I'm excited we got to do this. We love you, Selman. Love you, Selman. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it.